<laughs> the transfer window is part of the Daily Record Podcast Network. Subscribe at iTunes or Audio Boom. Good day. Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that refreshes the parts other podcasts cannot reach. Coming up, we'll be trying our best to answer questions like, are Manchester United about to grab Thomas Lamar from under Arsenal's nose? Are Real Madrid set to resurrect their bid for David De Gea? Barcelona say they're close to a deal, but are Liverpool ready to part ways with Philip Coutinho? And is the crisis at Chelsea getting even worse as Juventus priced them out of a move for Alexandro? This, plus anything else we can squeeze into the next hour or so. I'm Henry McRae, and I'm joined by Transfer Window regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. So let's get started. And Duncan, I believe you've got some fresh news about a new target for Manchester United. Yes, um, Manchester United have added Thomas Lamar to their candidates for the second-line forward role that Jose Mourinho has been trying to fill this whole window. Um it's essentially, as it stands, they're looking at Perisic, who's never been the first choice for the position and has been priced up by Inter Milan to extremely high level. Um, or Lamar, who established himself as one of the great young talents in European football last season. Monaco are asking €60 million Euros for the player, which on the, the prices that they've been selling players this season isn't ridiculous. Um, and he... He would provide a, a range of options, can play behind the centre forward, can play left, can play right, um, a lot quicker, a lot more inventive probably than Perisic is. Um, so that's the, the move that uh, Manchester United are examining at present as they finish up the transfer window. I think it's only fair that, that Duncan be allowed to go answer that phone. That's obviously Jose Mourinho <laughs> on, on, on the line there, asking yeah. him what the latest news on Lamar is. I think this is a very, very sensible and uh, and very practical move for Manchester United as well, Henry. Um, I, I think we spoke last week as well about how the Gareth Bale situation uh, around the European Super Cup was a little bit of a of a drama, a little bit of a sideshow and not necessarily uh, a very sort of uh, truthful, let's just say, move on Jose Mourinho's part with regards to his intention of signing a bail. Um, it was always my understanding that he wanted a more versatile midfielder, someone who could play on both flanks, someone who could even drop back, someone who worked hard when it's off the ball. We know for a fact that he tried very hard to get William from Chelsea. Chelsea refused to sell. Indeed, William even um, gave an interview, I think, in, in Brazil about two weeks ago where he said that he had spoken to Mourinho about that move and he was tempted, but he was told by Chelsea that he wasn't allowed to leave. So Lamar is available, has been the subject of intense interest from Arsenal, I think, way back uh, to May. Um, And so not only would it be a coup for Manchester United to sign him because they would, as Duncan said, you know, fill that last hole, the last piece of the jigsaw for Mourinho in terms of his transfer business, but it would uh, obviously be a slap in the face of Arsene Wenger, which, as we know, Jose Mourinho is one to quite enjoy that. Um, he would fit into the presumably that line of three behind Lukaku that we saw them line up in a four-two-three-one uh, set up on on Sunday. It's getting quite crowded in their squad. 
who who we're likely to see make way? I mean, you've got Martial, you've got Mkhitaryan, you've got uh, Rashford in there, you've got Juan Mata. Can we see someone moving out of Old Trafford? Well, we know that Martial has, has been the subject uh, of, of some interest, hasn't he, from Tottenham in the last 10 days. I think you're right that it's getting a bit crowded. But in saying that, you've got three positions there uh, and you've got a very long season of both Premier League, Champions League and then domestic cup competitions. So I think you did at least five for the three places and possibly even six. And I think Mourinho's one to hedge his bets on that on that one in terms of make sure he's got enough players because someone will get injured, someone will get suspended, someone will drop out of form. Um, and I reckon, you know, in terms of their first choice, I think Duncan would be the best person to answer on that one. I, I don't think they are crowded in those positions. I think they're short. Um, you know, he's, play, he's not going to play 4-2-3-1 all the time. He's going to play 4-3-3 quite often um, with wingers. If you look at the wingers he's been using, he... he He's starting Marcus Rashford, who's a centre-forward. In reality, best position is certainly cover for the centre-forward position. We're going to be sharing it with um, Lukaku uh, on that left-hand side. He also starts Martial on the left-hand side, who again is a, a sort of composite striker. Martial himself would prefer to be playing central rather than on the left. And he doesn't have, on the right-hand side, he doesn't have genuine pace. Um, you know, it's compromises with using Lingard there sometimes, using Mata there. Mkhitaryan's best position is is behind the centre forward. So, you know, these these are roles that are really important in a Mourinho team. He's always used wingers, second line strikers as, as a big part of his tactical shape. And he wants to have really good ones and lots of options. And, you know, that that's why he was going for Willian, because he knew exactly, it's comparable to Matic, he knew exactly what he was getting. He knew a guy who, who understood his tactical system intimately and could play in different ways. And, and Williams, you know, was the ideal candidate because he can play right behind, left-hand side, does the defensive work as well as the attacking work, which is also important there. So I wouldn't say it's impossible that there might be an exit if there is going to be an exit, I would say that the likely one is Martial, but I wouldn't put any great money on it because it's not—it's a—it's a, a sale that Jose has resisted since he came to the club, despite a difficult first season that Martial had, where he—he he wasn't focused on football and he wasn't happy with his, his status in the club. Uh, Mourinho's worked very hard to to try and get him back to where he needs to be to express his ability properly and that's not a project he's given up on yet well Manchester United were obviously rampant on Sunday uh, Matic beginning to look like a bargain after one game are we are we getting too excited too early about United and the prospects for the season ahead I think so I think um, you know I, I think it's typical of a, of a lot of response to football these days it's you know one result can be interpreted as uh, I'd listened to Tim Sherwood uh, on Premier League television talking about that game, saying after watching the game that for him Manchester United were the outstanding favourites to win the Premier League title, and if they didn't win it, it would be a, a big failure for the club and for their manager on the basis of of one game, which for me was almost exactly like. 10 or 12 of the games they played last season um, in which they dominated the play, controlled possession, controlled 
the position of the ball on the pitch, made lots of chances. But in this case, Lukaku's shot goes in off rather than bouncing out. So they have a goal lead, um, which makes the game much easier for them. They get another goal and then they can coast. Whereas last season, we saw time and time again, those shots not going in, easy chances being missed. And United having or coming up against a goalkeeper who, who had his, his best game of the season. And United having to battle for 90 minutes sometimes to only get a point. And if you look also at what Mourinho said in his interviews after that match, he was kind of being asked the same question, oh, this is, this is where you want the team to be, this is the right Manchester United traditional attacking football. And he, he just said, no, it's, it's a good result, but... There were errors in that game and we almost conceded after we went a goal up and you know we scored a goal where we didn't score last season so it's an improvement but let's not get carried away and I, and I think that's that's the realistic view of it I, I agree with Duncan on that Henry I think um, as journalists as as observers of football as pundits some people are you know more affected by the lack of competitive football the lack of uh, cut and thrust of the Premier League than others and they're more, more prone to hyperbole. I would compare it to um, the conditions suffered by deep sea divers when they, they run out of auction and they suddenly go a bit wobbly and it's called the bends. And I think uh, some pundits after Sunday's win over West Ham were, were a bit suffering from that kind of uh, a little bit wobbly thinking, oh yes, yeah, back to the, the, the great old days, back to the Cavalier football of Fergie, etc, etc, because uh, United scored four goals and, and did look quite rampant, as you said, in terms of their, their attacking play. But I don't think you know we can make too many judgments based on one game of, uh, at home on the opening day of the season against a team who have made many changes in terms of uh, transfers, but not just that, have some injuries as well. And I suspect that since I think it's 19... 90-something, the last time West Ham won at Old Trafford, I think it was the Decanio goal in the FA Cup, then we shouldn't put too much stall on uh, on uh, West Ham's performance against Manchester United just yet. And I, I do think that Jose Mourinho is desperate to, as uh, we've been discussing, put in that last piece of the jigsaw so that he feels confident going forward that his team can battle both on the uh, Premier League title and in the Champions League as well. I thought it was interesting... The impact Matic had, people expected him to come in and hold a hold a midfield, and, you know, in front of the defence and, and let uh, Pogba uh, rampage forward. But it was almost like both of them did that for one another because it was often the case that Pogba was sitting deep and and Matic got further ahead than we probably expected him to see in a United shirt. Very true. It reminded me a little bit of um, a conversation that Sven Jorn Eriksson had uh, with uh, Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard ahead of the uh, 2004 European Championships um, where they asked him for advice and obviously the big debate was always you know can they play together they're both the same kind of player they both score goals etc etc and uh, when they went to Ericsson and asked him for his tactical uh, opinion and his expertise uh, he simply said he go you stay you go, he stay. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes simplicity is the key. And that clearly was the case on Sunday because you're absolutely right. Pogba sat when Matic went forward and vice versa. And sometimes you know, we do complicate football. It can be a very simple game. We complicate it unnecessarily. And I think you know, the way that Pogba and Matic gelled, and remember, in their very first 90 minutes together, was an example of how football can be played very well just doing the simple things as well as you can. 
Yeah, look, I, I know I know Mourinho was very happy with Matic's performance in that game, and he, he got what he expected from him. I think people forget that Nemanja Matic was actually an attacking midfielder in his development, and it was only when he moved to Benfica uh, from Chelsea that uh, Jorge Jesus converted him into a player who, who primarily plays in front of the defence. So he has that element to his play. He's always had that element to play. And the, the other thing that's, you know, I think it's important about Matic is for his age, he's just turned 29. Um, he's actually not played that much football. He's a bit like, he's not, not quite in the Didier Drogba level of, of not having played football until he was, I think Didier started playing seriously and was about 24. Um, so a lot of extra years left in his clock. But he's, he's in that category of player who's not played as much, uh, not had as, as many demands on him through his career as a guy like, for example, Wayne Rooney, who's been playing football since he was 16. So there's probably, avoid, assuming he can avoid a, a serious ligament injury, there's probably um, several more years to be had from him than, the, than his age would, uh, would, might make you think. OK, well, it certainly looks good for United uh, going forward. But Ian, um, you've got some news on a possible Real Madrid bid uh, for David De Gea. Yes, Henry. I mean, this is one that it, we, we often would refer to as a saga. Um, and it certainly uh, is is that because it's been going on for at least two years, if not more. Obviously, uh, last year, next to deadline day, Real Madrid had agreed terms with both United and De Gea. And then for some reason, someone decided it was better to use a fax machine than it was email to do the uh, necessary administrative work. And the whole thing fell through. So what I um, have been hearing is that, um, uh, not that it's any secret to people in Spain, but you know people who may in this country have been watching the Spanish Super Cup over the last five days have seen Marco Asensio, um, attacking midfielder, score two absolute sensational goals, uh, one at the Bernabeu last night and then one uh, in the Camp Nou last Saturday. And Asensio's form, his skill, his talent uh, as I said has been recognised in Spain for some time he kept Gareth Bale out of a starting place in the Champions League final um, he deserved that, he worked for that and he earned it And um, in, uh, Real Madrid have been trying to extend Asensio's contract for about the last six weeks without success as yet because at the moment uh, and you've got to put this in the context of the current window and what price are being paid, Marco Asensio's buyout clause is, is a mere Seventy-two million pounds, eighty million euros at this moment in time, which means any club, including Barcelona, who have been rumoured to have been trying to, could pay that buyout clause and sign Marco Asensio. So what Madrid have been doing is they've been offering him a new contract at extended terms. They want up that buyout clause to around one hundred forty million euros. So how does this affect De here in Manchester United? Well, in those negotiations, Asensio and his representatives have expressed their concern about how much game time Asensio will have at the Bernabeu next season because obviously you've still got Bale, Ronaldo, Benzema occupying the front three places. Asensio has effectively, despite his performances, been a bit part player for Real Madrid in the last 18 months and the player himself is ambitious. He's clearly got what it takes to be uh, a Real Madrid player, uh, first team player uh, in every week of the team is picked and his he and his representatives have been saying, well, we need some guarantees here because we've heard rumours that you're sending Hazard, uh, from Chelsea, or you're going to sign another Galactico outfield player because that's what President Florentino 
Perez promised when he was elected unopposed in June of this summer. In those negotiations, I am told that instead, Asensio and his representatives were told, no, we're abandoning all plans to sign a new outfield Galactico. And instead, the last piece of the jigsaw for Zidane's team is, in fact, a goalkeeper. And that goalkeeper is, as always, we go back to the saga, David De Gea. So, we're looking at what? Just under two weeks left of the transfer window left to go. I think United will resist this because trying to get a uh, replacement for De Gea now would be very, very difficult for them. But what we also know is that De Gea sees himself playing for Real Madrid in his career. He's already imagined himself in that shirt. He will want the move. And if it comes back that they make him personally a very good offer in terms of a contract and that they obviously offer enough money for United to be tempted to sell, this could be one that we see finally concluded when the window closes in September. Duncan, what, uh, how do you feel that a bid from Madrid would be received at Old Trafford? Um, well, look, I, I think this is another example of the of uh, Ian's uh, butterfly in the South Pacific causing a flood in Inverurie that he introduced us to last week. What What's happened with Madrid is, is about Kylian Mbappe. They had that deal, as far as they were concerned, secured, and he was going to be the Galactico player coming in. And they lost that deal because Kylian Mbappe's father told Madrid that he, he didn't want to play in a team in which Bale and Ronaldo were both present. And, well, and at the same time got a much better offer from Paris Saint-Germain. So switched, uh, it was a week ago last Tuesday that Madrid became aware during the day they were playing Manchester United in the Super Cup that this was going to happen. And he, he switched sides and it is, uh, has secured the deal with Paris Saint-Germain. Um, so now they've got to they've got to realign their their strategy for the summer. And as Ian points out, they like to have a Galactico every summer. So it makes sense for them to to have another go at David de Gea, um, which is something that Manchester United were sure they had decided not to do on the basis that the money was going to Mbappe instead. So yeah, it, it will it will be if they push this and if they put money on the table it uh, it'll be a big problem for manchester united but i suspect that they will manage to retain the hair because he has not pushed for this move under jose mourinho at any point when he's had the opportunity to do so and for him to leave at this stage of the window when he's committed to playing for the club would be a uh, a switch with major repercussions that go just beyond David De Gea and, go, and move on to, um, I think, with his, his agent um, and the agent he shares with Jose Mourinho. OK, well, let's uh, move to the other side of the, the Spanish giants and, and look at Barcelona. A statement uh, came out last night that uh, they're close to deals for Philip Coutinho and Dusman Dembele. What are we hearing about the latest on Coutinho? Um, well, it's Pep Seguro, the, the general manager, came out after after the hammering, the second hammering in a, in a week from Real Madrid to tell the fans on Catalan TV that not only would they be signing uh, Philippe Coutinho, uh, their first choice, they would also be signing Osman Dembele, which is quite a remarkable thing to say when your Coutinho is being priced at 150 million euros by Liverpool and Dembele, I think, is... is uh, Borussia Dortmund are asking for pretty much the same amount of money for him. Uh, so they're all Barcelona are already in a very difficult place, having lost Neymar against their will. Losing these games to Real Madrid obviously intensifies the problem. 
and they need to do something very quickly to resolve it. I was talking to a contact in Barcelona this morning and they said, essentially, where's the, where's the bidding gone? Have, have Barcelona increased their offer for Liverpool? And it was, you know, uh, they, the bidding is going to go to whatever it takes to get the player now after last night's result. Um, earlier in the week, I was hearing they wouldn't go above 120 million euros, which would, would, would appear to be a sensible compromise, given that they'd initially bid 80, had that turned down, then went for 100, had that turned down, and had uh, Fenway Sports Group make their statement that Coutinho would not be sold under any circumstances, only to be hit by Coutinho um, very publicly making a transfer request. Um, in the background to all of this, while Liverpool were briefing the press that there had only initially been one bid by Barcelona, the 80 million euro bid, and that Barcelona had not come back and made any offers to them, further offers to them or had any further discussions with them, the reality was that Liverpool were speaking to Barcelona and negotiating the deal and had told Barcelona the price they were looking for was 150 million euros. And this reality in the background and the way that Liverpool have been um, misrepresenting what's been going on with Coutinho and misrepresenting what's been going on with their club-to-club -club negotiations in Barcelona is one of the reasons why Coutinho has made that transfer request and one of the reasons why he's developed a sore back that's kept him out of the first Premier League game of the season, which they drew Watford, and their Champions League qualifier against Hoffenheim, which they just about managed to win despite uh, conceding an early penalty. <coughs> so... Where does it go from here? I think it will be resolved. I think a compromise will be reached. Um, it will probably be more than 120 million euro given the defeat, but it's going to be um, a very sizable amount of money for a player of Philippe, Philippe Coutinho's um, abilities. There's, there's interestingly, there's, there's two things that work here which I am I'm intrigued by. Um, uh, the first is, yeah, we talk about what's the biggest derby in the world. Is it... You know, you know, the Manchester's Liverpool versus Manchester United, which essentially is not really a derby at all. Um, is it in London? Is it in Glasgow? Is it in Milan? Etc. Etc. What other game in the world, when one team loses to another, then triggers a £150 million purchase of a player than Real Madrid beating Barcelona? It's incredible. And, and, and Duncan's right. You know, this is uh, the, general, the sporting director of the, the general manager of the club speaking to Catalan TV. So that is your absolute ultras there saying we'll buy both and saying it with, you know, a, a sense of uh, definity that, that, that apparently, you know, listen, don't worry about it, guys. We're going to be fine by, by, uh, for our game and next Saturday, I think, away at Celta Vigo. Um, and everything's going to be good. Um, what I'm struck by in terms of Barcelona is that watching the game last night, um, I'm thinking about Leo Messi. I'm thinking he must be looking around thinking, why did I sign that contract? Because... He's now looking at, around himself at a team who just does not appear to me to have the, the same buoyancy, the same belief, the same ambition uh, that a Barcelona team you expect from them um, in terms of competing with Real Madrid. It's like you know, the pendulum um, has swung the other way from when Barcelona were completely dominant over uh, Real Madrid and now Madrid under Zidane, seven trophies in, I think, 18 months or 17 months. Uh, he's only lost three. He's only lost seven games in the time he's been there. Um, and he's won as many trophies. Incredible. Going back to Liverpool, um, politics are going to play a huge part in this. Um, it's certainly the case 
that when Barcelona made the original bid for Coutinho, uh, Jurgen Klopp spoke with senior figures at the club. Um, I'm not saying they were directly involved uh, with FSG in America, but certainly had the ear of FSG and w, John W. Henry. And he said, if you sell Coutinho, I will seriously consider my position at this club. Because if you sell that player from under my nose without giving me any um, reason, nor indeed the opportunity to buy a player who can replace him, then you're undermining my opportunity and my ambition to make this club a serious contender for the Premier League and for the Champions League. And so think about that before you think about selling Coutinho. Now, the response to that, it wasn't an ultimatum. It was, a, from what I hear, a friendly conversation, but it was obviously a big red flag from Klopp. And uh, FSG's statement last Thursday or Friday, I think it was, in which they categorically said, Coutinho will remain a Liverpool player and when the summer window closes, he will still be a Liverpool player. Was in response not to Barcelona's bid, but to Klopp's assertion that he would consider his own future should Coutinho be sold. Now, the clever thing about what FSG have done there is they have done what has been asked of them by Klopp. I make the public statement that he will not be sold. But what they haven't said or not guaranteed is that somehow the player will effectively agitate his own way out of the club and that will be beyond FSG's control and beyond Liverpool's control and that Klopp, quite frankly, will just have to suck it up. Now, we know that Coutinho wants to join Barcelona. We also know that FSG have said and will, let's face it, lose a huge amount of credibility if Coutinho is sold in this window now, given what they've said. Categorically, he will remain a Liverpool player when the window closes. Now, that's a standoff of fairly gargantuan proportions between a massive sports franchise in America, a Fenway Sports Group, which arguably is on a, a level as a global sports you know, franchise with Barcelona. So you've got you know, two giants knocking their heads here. And you've got lovely little guy in Felipe Coutinho, who is not nasty, who I don't think would go on strike or you know, feign injury or start injuring his fellow players in training in order to make sure his move goes through. So... I think this one goes to the wire, uh, and I, quite frankly, I can't call it right now. I think Barcelona will certainly improve their offer, but I can't call it as to whether it'll go or not because I think FSG have a lot to lose and a lot to ponder if they do sell them. I, I, I just think I think Liverpool have handled this very badly. They're one of the just for a one, change, Duncan. <laughs> one of the one of the lines that's coming out of Liverpool or has come out of Liverpool through this whole continue thing. While while they were trying to say the player is happy to remain here, which was blown away, of course, when the player stopped putting effort in in training, then came down with a sore back and then officially requested a transfer. That, that one's gone. But one of the other lines was, this is a World Cup year. We can hold the player against his will at Liverpool Football Club. We will, we will get a good season of football out of him because he wants to perform for Brazil in the World Cup. So it's all right. Don't worry. Everything will be fine. Now, this... I, I mean, I've had the privilege of doing a lot of work with the Brazilian national team as a journalist. And I think it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how Brazil works as a national squad. Coutinho is a very important player in that national squad. He scored seven goals in 27 games for the national team. He's the, he's the second highest scorer in that current squad behind Neymar. He's, he's a fundamental component of it. And 
South American national teams in, in these kind of contexts, they quite often don't worry about whether what a club, uh, a player's form is for their club, as long as he's integral to their system and important to their system. And you're a coach and you see a player who's at odds with his club going into a World Cup year, you might want to use that in your own interest and say to the player, well, you know, you're not happy at your club and they're not treating you well. So just, just do what's required to get yourself to the World Cup in a nice fit shape. Don't take any risks. Don't play too many games. Don't put yourself out and concentrate everything on being at the top of your form to help me win the World Cup in Russia. And that might well be the, if they hold on to the player, the player's response might be, yeah, fine, I'll do exactly that. So Liverpool, when they're, they're calculating, we get as good a season out of Coutinho as we got from Luis Suarez when we held him. Um, against as well when he wanted to go to Barcelona, might find themselves getting a big shock if they do uh, push it to the wire and refuse to sell a player who, let's face it, let's take away Liverpool's history, let's take away the fact they are a club with a huge rep global reputation and amazing achievements in English and European football. Realistically, as a football player, when you've got the decision between going to Barcelona, who have won two Champions League titles in a, in a period in which Liverpool have qualified only once for the Champions League or staying at a team that hasn't won a national title for 26 years in its own country, what decisions do you make? It's, it's true, Duncan, though, what you say about the, the Celasal in Brazil and, and how they regard um, their players. Um, it, it, it's not just South America, though. I, I remember... Um, a story told um, about when uh, Juventus had the uh, the joy of having both Michel Platini and Zbigniew Boniek in their team. Uh, they got Juventus team, obviously, that, that won uh, European Cups in the 80s. And um, Platini, when asked by Boniek, you look fit in training, why aren't you playing? And he said, well, it's European Champions next summer, Championships next summer, this was in 1984, and the France team likes me to be fresh. <laughs> so, I, so basically, I take six months off between January and, and June before the championships uh, because I know I'll be picked anyway and I just want to make sure I don't get injured because that's more important to me than, than playing for Juventus at this moment in time. And so we shouldn't discard this notion that you know players will still be picked for their national squads if they're playing or not. This whole thing about, oh, it's based on form and everything else. As long as they're fit, they will be picked if they're good enough. So I think you're right. Liverpool are playing a very, very dangerous game if they think that Coutinho's World Cup place depends upon him playing regular football uh, this coming season. Well, Coutinho's not the only player in this sort of situation, obviously, because we've got uh, Alexis Sanchez in a similar predicament with Arsenal. How do we see this one playing out? I, I see, Henry, that Wenger continues. It's almost like the, old, the, the broken record, isn't it? Every time he does a press conference, it's, no, he stays... I see the latest phrase is, we are prepared to take a financial hit in order to keep him for another year, etc. Et That's fine. I, you know, I don't um, in any way disbelieve Wenger's uh, veracity in, in his own thoughts. However, I am certain, um, having had conversations with the people involved in the last three or four days, that Manchester City will make another bid for Alexis Sanchez before the window closes, up to £60 million now, that's more than twice what Arsenal paid for him from Barcelona four years ago. They paid 28, if my memory serves me correctly. 
for a player who's one year out of contract and four years older. That's the kind of money that someone like even Gazidis uh, and Stan Kroenke can't resist, regardless of what Wenger says. But it's a big, big problem for Wenger if Sanchez does leave, obviously. But look, the bottom line is Sanchez has told the club he wants to leave. So again, you've got this friction between what the player wants and what the club want or what the club might want and what the club who's trying to buy and want and everything else. And my personal opinion would be that I think Sanchez will not be at Arsenal next season. I think he will be at Manchester City. Yeah, look, I think, um, I think it's very interesting, Wenger, speaking openly about the calculation of uh, it would make sense financially to hold on to a player and run down his contract and get a good year out of him. And I, I do see the, the rationale behind that, especially as his, um, as his wages are relatively low compared to what he's asking for to remain. But the calculation has always got to be, will he perform in that year? You know, and, and some players don't perform when they don't get when they don't get what they want in terms of leaving a club. They down tools. Some perform out of their skins, as Luis Suarez did when he was uh, he was kept at Liverpool for that final season. But that's part of the personality of the individual exactly. more than anything else. And again, I think there's a, there's a you know there's an ab- absence of perspective here. There's this idea that Arsenal are a still a top club in Europe and a guy like Alexis Sanchez would want to stay with them because he's at a top club at Europe. Sanchez, like Ozil, left one of the top clubs at Europe because he hadn't done quite well enough there. He left Barcelona to, to come to Arsenal and that's, that's the equivalent of leaving Manchester United to go to, let's say, Everton or perhaps even lower in the, in the English first year. It's a significant step down as a, as a footballer. So if you've been at a club like that, if you then go take that step down and establish yourself as, re-establish yourself as one of the top players in a league and the top or close to the top clubs, one of the top clubs in terms of finances, we'll definitely put it that way, Manchester City with Pep Guardiola in charge, want you, you're going to go for that move. As simple as that. From a career perspective, you will want to move to the club where you A, get paid more money, B, work for a better coach, and C, have the opportunity to win trophies and, and prove yourself to be the caliber of player who was bought by Barcelona in the first place. So how do we see Arsenal going into this season? You know, they, they had a, obviously a bit of a fright in the opening game um, and came through it. Is this just another one of those disappointing seasons where Arsenal don't quite go over the line or do we see them actually mounting a serious challenge this season? So I, I, I think Arsenal um, <clears throat> have bought well in Alexander Lacazette, but you know, that's not enough. Um, what we saw uh, last Friday night uh, was a team who are still very fragile in defence, a team who can concede goals at will as well as score goals at will. And, and ask yourself, where have Arsenal strengthened to tell us that they are a much better team than last year? A team which failed to come in the top four, which failed to qualify for Champions League, um, a team which did not mount a challenge for the title. And it's it's same old Arsenal, same old story. And so, you know, the sale of Sanchez would be a big blow to them. But if I were Wenger, I would just take this one on the chin, get it done as quickly as possible and try and get someone in um, who is a decent centre-half and, and someone who's going to stop those goals going in. Prioritise Arsene. Make sure that you strengthen the, the team and the squad where it needs strengthening. Yeah, we know you can score goals. That's great. So therefore, stop conceding and you might have a chance. And this whole thing about holding players to their contracts because it will get a good season out of them. Everyone 
in Chile knows that Alexis Sanchez will start for Chile in the World Cup in Russia if they qualify. Um, and so there's no doubt about that whatsoever. So we'll go back to the, what we're talking about with, um, with Coutinho. It's not the case that he has to play really well to make the World Cup squad. You know, the only way he doesn't make the World Cup squad is if he gets injured. And obviously we hope that's not the case. So I think sometimes managers can be a bit blinded by, I think, not just public opinion, but the fans' opinion, i.e., oh, if we lose Sanchez, it's a disaster. Well, I go back to, you know, when Everton sold uh, Gary Lineker. And forgive me, our younger listeners, for going back that far. They sold him to Tottenham and they bought four players with the money they got for, for Lineker. And they won the title that year. So sometimes... It pays to speculate to accumulate. And I think Wenger needs to learn a bit about that if indeed his team is going to challenge for anything this season. Well, they, they were getting linked, obviously, very heavily with uh, Thomas Lamar. Um, and you would expect them to probably try and make that deal if they if they move Sanchez on. Is, that, is, is Duncan's news now that Manchester United are possibly going to make a bid? Would, are United too big a draw or could... Arsenal use the money they get for Sanchez to actually outbid United. Well, in, well interestingly, Henry, there was a, a, a time a couple of weeks ago when Monaco did express an interest in Sanchez when Arsenal were badgering him about Lamar in terms of some kind of swap deal. But I think in the end, Sanchez felt himself that Monaco had proven themselves to be a selling team in the you know three months after they'd won Liga and and therefore perhaps were not as credible a club to move to in terms of ambitions. Certainly the salary was very nice. and I think we've all been down there in Monte Carlo and enjoyed ourselves. So um, Alexis Sanchez may well have been tempted uh, for a little bit by that. But that seems to have fizzled out. I think Sanchez, um, I think Duncan's correct that um, playing for Pep Guardiola, playing for Manchester City, playing for a team which has learned from one year under Guardiola's stewardship. And I saw them play uh, against Brighton Hove Albion at the Amex last Saturday. And they looked, even though they're still obviously a little bit green from pre-season and everything else, they looked a very formidable team. They set up well. They played uh, their manager's tactical formation, his his, uh, game plan uh, almost to perfection. Yes, it took them 70 minutes to get the goal, but they'd never panicked. They were very patient. They knew they would score. um, And they've got a very, very effective squad, uh, which, you know, if Sanchez joined them, would become even better. As far as Lamar's concerned, well, obviously, I think Wenger's depending or was depending slightly on the whole uh, French connection at Arsenal, um, you know, bringing a player in who obviously has played in the national team with uh, Giroud, Lacazette, um, Koscielny, amongst others. And um, I, whether that can, is enough to persuade him, plus, you know, the living in London, is, I think, has been a big plus for players transferring from um, Europe in the past. But they haven't got the deal over the line yet, and they've been trying for six weeks. So you have to say, well, there's something gone wrong there. And if Manchester United come in with the right offer and the right contract, and also the char of Jose Mourinho and his charisma in terms of um, telling a player where he'll play, how he'll play, how many trophies he's going to win, because that's exactly what Jose does when he's entertaining a prospective transfer target, then I'd say Manchester United are probably the driving seat right now. And, and Manchester United have Champions League football to offer on top Absolutely. of that. I, I look, if, if, if you just look at the Arsenal team they put out for the game against Leicester, look at the defence they started. They had Nacho Monreal as their lead centre-back. 
They had holding on the right-hand side of their defence, getting ripped apart every time Leicester attacked down the left because Bellerin was too far up to protect him and he, and he couldn't handle the pace anyway. They had a new new guy starting at the left side of their centre-back for the first time and they had Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain as a left-sided wing-back. How do you expect to win the Premier League? OK, they had players injured, but the replacements aren't, aren't substantially better than that. How do you expect to win a Premier League with a defence like that? And you know, fun fundamentally, the problem with Arsenal, is, which is not going to go away until the manager has changed, is they are operating a system of running a football team that is at least a decade too old. So their, their, their physical preparation is poor and it costs them a lot of injuries through the season. But their tactical preparation is, well, it's probably even last century rather than uh, last decade, they play the same way against everyone. Arsene Wenger, if you listen to him after a match in which they've lost, he repeats the same thing in every press conference in a different way. We'll be fine as long as the players believe in ourselves and we play our own game. That, that is the Arsene Wenger message publicly, and that's the Arsene Wenger yeah. message to the players. And you don't win, you don't win top-level football matches playing that way anymore on a regular basis. When I agree, Duncan, and when when you know traveling to Champions League games over the last twenty years to cover them for for various newspapers, I used to hang my head in despair when I heard the manager of the English Premier League team say something like, "Well, it's not about them; it's about how we play, and if we play to our capacity, then we'll be fine." And I'm thinking, seriously, has has, has anything changed since 1966 here? <laughs> are, we, are we seriously saying that you shouldn't scout the opposition team, find out their weaknesses, expose every single minimal margin that we that you might be able to do? And unfortunately, that was a way of looking at it for such a long time. And I agree with you. I think Wenger is stuck in that same era of, well, I don't know much about the opposition, and he might, he may even, he, he does do, but I know everything about my own team, and therefore, as long as that's the case, then we'll be fine. And it's no longer the case. Uh, and you know, to go back yeah. to the, if we go back to compare the way that Pep Guardiola has prepared his squad for this coming season, having failed to win a trophy last year, he spent more on fullbacks alone than it cost to build Brighton Stadium and their training ground. That's how serious he is about the, about his defending this coming season. You know, he I saw them play as I said at the Amex um, last Friday evening, uh, Saturday evening, and I'd say that they were still. Vulnerable defence. John Stones played in the middle of a of a back three, with two wing backs, and Brighton's failure, if anything, during the game was that they didn't put, press a man onto Stones, who, as we know, is very very vulnerable to making a mistake. And I think the reason that uh, they've had this second bid for Johnny Evans at West Brom uh, rejected uh, yesterday is because Guardiola sees that he is still deficient in defence, despite spending around one hundred and thirty six million pounds on defenders already this summer and he needs someone else at centre back who is experienced, who knows the league and he can rely on. And a lot of fans raising their eyebrows, why would Manchester City want Johnny Evans? I can see exactly why Manchester City want Johnny Evans. He's reliable, he distributes the ball well, he tackles well, he reads the game well. He was very unlucky I think to be, you know, trundled out of Manchester United under the, the bumbling Louis Van Hal. But he's done very well um, both for his club and his country. You've got to remember this guy's captain of both his club and Northern Ireland, who have been incredible form for the past two years. And Johnny Evans has been inspirational. So I think Guardiola has been very, very cute here 
uh, in terms of pursuing Evans. He knows that at some point West Brom will uh, concede to the, the, the price that they are offering for him. I reckon that price will be around £25 million and Evans will be a Manchester City player. And I, you, know, you compare that to Wenger, who spent £52 million on a striker, when clearly, as we saw last Friday night against Leicester, it's the poorest defence that needs mending. Johnny Evans is a player that should still be a Manchester United player. He, he is not better than some of the players who were starting at centre-back for Manchester United last season. It's interesting to me, and this is the first time we've seen it in this window, that Manchester City are going for what you could call a calculated, economical, clever signing, rather than just simply putting as much money down as possible for the number one targets. So they are in a situation where you've got Manchester City, Chelsea and Liverpool all looking for centre-backs at the moment. And... Uh, potentially being prepared to spend 50, 60 million pounds on one centre-back. And if this is the solution that they have come upon, and that's the last centre-back they sign, they've said, OK, we're going to skip out of this. We're not going to go for Van Dijk or equivalent and pay that amount of money for him. We're going to do a sensible, experienced Premier League defender who we can get at a better price. So that's 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 fascinating that they've they're they're changing their strategy slightly in that regard. And the other thing is, as Ian was pointing out, Guardiola is addressing the problems in his team. He's spending a lot of money to do it. If you've got that money, great, go ahead and do it. And Arsenal certainly got plenty of money to use if they wanted to in those areas. But not only will he, is he addressing it with new recruits you know he will address it from a tactical point of view as well. He'll come up with different strategic solutions to improve his defence, which Arsene Wenger won't do. You know, he started playing a three-back almost out of desperation um, last season, and he'll stick with that until he decides um, that it's not working anymore, and then he'll go back to a four-back system. But there won't be any innovation there. He'll just stick to the same old thing, and ultimately they will come undone because of that. Okay, talking about defending, uh, we've got the defending champions Chelsea who had a very difficult time on Saturday afternoon when they were beaten by Burnley. Ian, you've got some fresh news about some transfer bid for Alexandro. Yes, Henry, as we know, Chelsea's pursuit of uh, Alexandro of Juventus has been long and tiring through the summer. First of all, of course, they, they, they wanted um, Bonucci, who eventually went to Milan, which... You know, in some ways, it's like Mo Johnson signing for Rangers after accepting for Celtic. And so, you know, you would have thought that at some point Chelsea could have capitalised on a little bit of discontent and unrest stroke, sort of chaos at Juventus. Uh, and Alexandro might have been someone they could have got instead of Bonucci. But far from that being the case, um, Juventus have, have effectively uh, been very, very resistant of the interest in terms of the money being offered so far. And indeed, what I have been told uh, from sources in Turin is that uh, Juventus would only consider um, any uh, transfer of Alexandro starting, and get this, starting at a price of £73 million. £73 million for a defender. Now, I think we've all been slightly taken aback in the last few weeks about the prices being paid in this particular transfer window. And, you know... I, I, Personally, I, I think football is eating itself with regards to the money that's being paid. 
But Chelsea will not pay that amount of money for Alexandro. I'm certain of that. And I think it's certainly the case that their continued pursuit of him is more about uh, trying to assuage the obvious friction and tension that we spoke about at length last week on the transfer podcast between Conte himself and the people who decide transfers at Stamford Bridge. Um, so I think this is a, a bit of a, a red herring um, in terms of it will go nowhere unless Juventus significantly reduce the asking price for the player. Having lost Bonucci, clearly, they don't want to lose another centre-back and someone who is very much a cornerstone of the team. Um, as far as the Burnley game's concerned, I'm probably the minority here. I don't think it was a disaster at all for Chelsea. I think it's very... Um, credible that if you lose your captain and centre-back Gary Cahill in 14 minutes to a red card against any team in the Premier League that the way that basically destroys your game plan for a start, so you all, all week you train to play in a particular way and obviously you're not trained to play with 10 men after 14 minutes, that you have a period of instability in the team and certainly in the defence, which let's face it, Burnley's goals were part, you know, very simple part quite special, uh, but that I mean Ward's goal. Um, so, uh, you know, losing one game in the Premier League to Burnley is not a disaster. And, and, and I don't think anyone at Chelsea, right up to the, the hierarchy, believe that that game was somehow symptomatic of what's going on between the manager, his coaching staff, and uh, the executives who make decisions with regarding transfer. I think it was more just a case of, well, OK, you know, we were a bit unlucky we lost a man, we lost a second man, we lost three goals, we scored two, etc., etc. So I don't see, alarm bells are not going off with regards to, oh, Conte's on the brink of being sacked or anything like that. I think that's definitely exaggeration. Um, I still think that, the, that there is a willingness within the uh, Chelsea hierarchy to satisfy Conte's demands for new players before the window closes, but it will not be done at any cost. And I think this is where the likes of Virgil van Dijk and Danny Rose come into the equation. Um, although I suspect uh, very, very much that Daniel Levy will not allow Rose to leave for a direct Premier League and indeed London-hated rival in Chelsea. Um, and also uh, with van Dijk, Chelsea got a lot of catching up to do with Liverpool because as long ago as March of this year, van Dijk had told some friends that he would definitely join Liverpool in the summer. Um, that the contract for the player himself had been agreed. It was all about obviously agreeing the fee with Southampton. Um, and like we know how these things go. They get dragged out to get the, the, the highest possible price. Personally, I think you know Van Dijk has seen himself in the red jersey of Liverpool. And my experience of football players is if they if they already in their minds have moved club and seen themselves in that, then they would rather go to that club than suddenly go to another. Um, and it would take an awful lot of money in terms of a better contractual offer to sway Van Dyke from joining Liverpool and instead go to Chelsea. Um, in fact, this morning uh, we hear news from Italy of Southampton making a bid for another Dutch defender from Lazio, um, which who clearly is the replacement for Van Dyke. So the whole thing about Van Dyke, he's not for sure he's going nowhere, I think is just what, well, what we all believe has been all summer, which is you know a holding tactic for two reasons. One, to get more money for the player, um, out of the buying club, in this case Liverpool, uh, and secondly, waiting until they get a um, confirmed replacement to take uh, over in central defence for Van Dijk. So I, I would say uh, by this time next week when we're talking in the transfer podcast, 
um, Van Dijk will already be um, given a squad number at Liverpool and that's where he'll be playing his football this season. I think Ian's correct in that Chelsea still want to resolve the problems with Conte because it would be a huge embarrassment for them to lose him uh, so soon after winning the title. But these problems are intensifying. Despite the, the contract being signed, and OK, it was a, a contract which didn't extend his terms, just improved his, his pay, subsequent to that, things have got worse because he is now into the season with a substandard squad. He's still fighting them over transfers. And, and this is an important factor with Conte, he's losing games. So he lost the Community Shield, which is important to him. He lost the FA Cup final. Um, albeit several months ago, but that's still a, a, a defeat. He lost the first game of the Premier League season and he now faces Tottenham this weekend. It gets very, very difficult to be around, causes a lot of problems with his staff, causes a lot of problems in, the, in a club when things are going wrong. So the, so the situation has now got results thrown in on top of the, the basic conflicts about access to the board, about signing players, about academy, about his pay. The only one that's been resolved is the pay. If, if they keep losing games, and at the moment it looks like they will keep losing games because he doesn't think the squad's good enough and the squad isn't performing, this could explode into a situation where talking to people who know him well, some of them are surprised he's still at the club. There's some are surprised that he, he had told people during the summer, he was definitely leaving, and they were shocked that he ended up remaining. And they're now surprised that he's still there and actively worrying and concerned and thinking, well, what is the next stage here? Will there be another explosion? Will he walk? The guys who know him best aren't sure, and that's the situation Chelsea are in at the moment. I think that's true, Duncan. And what I would say is... Uh, which another thing which will be worrying Chelsea supporters, and I would sincerely hope is worrying Roman Abramovich and his um, fellow directors as well, is that when there's problems at a club, and let's face it, Chelsea has been the soap opera of problems between managers and, and the board for the last 13, 14 years, the players interpret that as a doubt about the manager's authority. Uh, this unfortunately happened to Jose Mourinho, uh, in his uh, third season back at Chelsea, when, of course, he was infamously sacked in November uh, after a string of, of uh, desperate results. And what happened then, and let's face it, uh, their core of players is pretty much the same as it was then, minus two or three, Matic being one, obviously, who's just left. But uh, those players saw in the row with uh, when they had the um, upset over the, the, the doctor who left the club, et cetera, et cetera, that the manager's authority had been undermined by the board because she wasn't just paid off and it all went into a huge public um, scandal, et cetera, et cetera, which was then settled the day before it was due to go to employment tribunal. But when the players lose faith in the, in the manager, I lose faith in his authority at the club, then they have an excuse to fail. And never a true word spoken. You give a football player an excuse to fail, they will fail because it's someone else's fault, not theirs. Only when they can trust the manager and his authority at the club and believe that they're playing for the guy who's in charge will they try 100% all the time. Now, maybe we saw a little bit of that last Saturday afternoon at Stamford Bridge. Maybe, because as I said, I don't believe that one defeat in the Premier League is a disaster. 
However, Tottenham away at Wembley on Sunday afternoon is a much bigger deal because you've got a club who actually have signed less players than Chelsea. So what, what's their excuse uh, in terms of if they lost to Tottenham? Uh, Chelsea, Tottenham have so far not improved their squad at all. Chelsea have signed Alvaro Morata, Bakayoko, they've signed Rudiger. So, but that group of Chelsea players at this moment in time, I don't think believe that Conte has the authority and the mandate of the club and the club's owner. And so again, I say it again, give it a player excuse to fail, they'll fail. So if something goes wrong early on in the game, they lose a goal uh, at Wembley to Tottenham, heads will go down and they'll think, well, it doesn't really matter because, let's face it, it's not our fault. The, the club are under, undermining the manager. We've not got a strong enough squad. So if we lose, we lose. That's a very, very dangerous position to be in as a manager when that's how your players think. Yeah, and, and as, as we both know really well, Chelsea, it's not just having an excuse to fail. It's not just seeing the manager's authority undermine and thinking, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. We, we can do what we like. The, this is a club where players have actively turfed their manager out on more than one occasion because they've got that message from the, the people, the, the man who runs the club and the people that help him run the club, that they are more important than the manager and, and have been asked about the qualities of managers before and been asked to undermine them and, and have happily gone ahead and done that. So I'm not saying that's happening at the moment. That's not, not the sense I get at all. But it might not be too far away if the results don't come. Not only that, Duncan, as we both know as well at Chelsea, <clears throat> along the way of these last tumultuous, I think it's 13 years under Roman Abram Abramovich now, um, uh, 14 years in fact, it was uh, 2003 when he bought the club, the cycle of disposing of and hiring of managers um, has been pretty brutal. But in that same time, the club has won every single trophy available to them barring the World Club Cup. And so the people below Abramovich, when questioned about why this manager failed or why was it the case that that manager was undermined in the dressing room or anything else, say, well, do you know what? We've got a model that works. Sacking managers works for Chelsea because we win trophies. So having a manager for less than three years is not a problem for us. We just go and get another one. Now, if Abramovich, and it seems he has, has bought into this sort of you know, chaos theory of you know, uh, serial sackings, then Conte himself is disposable. Clearly he is. What I would say is, well, who else is there out there? Who are you going to get in? Is it going to be another Red Adair job for Goose Hiddink? Because Hiddink has won one FA Cup in his time as caretaker manager at Chelsea. So he's not exactly the man to bring you trophies. He's just the man to steady the ship. OK, uh, we're almost done. I've just got a, a list here I've written down of uh, a few players we've spoken about and maybe uh, uh, two or three that we haven't. But about a quick fair round, turn about, I'll give you a name. You tell me where they'll be playing in two weeks' time when the transfer window's closed. Alexis Sanchez. Manchester City. Duncan Philip Coutinho. Barcelona. Diego Costa. Wraith Rovers. <laughs> I think Diego Costa will be playing on a Brazilian beach in two weeks' time. Okay, Ross Barkley. Uh, unfit, still at Everton. Virgil van Dijk. Liverpool. Alex Sandro. <laughs> Juventus. Johnny Evans. Manchester City. David De Gea. Manchester United. Okay, so the only one we bailed on is Diego Costa. We couldn't come to a conclusion. Oh, on... I think Wraith Rovers is definitely. I wasn't going strong enough on that there. Fair enough. I've, I've heard they've made a massive bid for him, and they've also got a beach there you can play football on. Good. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks uh, to Ian and to Duncan. Uh, that was excellent. We've got just over 
two weeks left of the window. We'll be back with more updates next week. This is the Transfer Window podcast, available on iTunes, Audio Boom, and a bunch of other places that I can't remember their names, but you'll find it if you really want to. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. Mm-hmm.